Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Bringing community mental health to you, raising awareness and challenging stigma. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio, Wednesdays at 5pm. Melbourne's Drive Time Radio Program, featuring community organisations, powerful stories and information. Find us at brainwaves.org.au. Proudly sponsored by Wellways Australia. Hello and welcome to Brainwaves on 3CR, 855am. My name is Rebecca and today I'm joined by Terry, Susie and Rachel. Today we'll be talking about mental health in 2018. We've selected some issues and topics that were in the spotlight last year and are going to discuss it. So just a warning in today's show, we will be discussing some sensitive material. There may may be mentions of eating disorders and child sex abuse. If any of this is confronting for you, please tune out. Okay, Susie, do you want to start us off? I believe you'll be talking about resignation syndrome. That's right, yes. So what is resignation syndrome? Well, last year I saw some media reports of this syndrome, which is uh, I'd never heard of before, and it is um, a, a fairly rare condition. It's also been referred to as a severe trauma-related mental disorder, and it often results in total withdrawal, and as such it's a disassociative disorder. So how did this condition gain media attention? Well, this terrible condition was affecting children who the Australian government had detained indefinitely, many for five years, on the Pacific island of Nauru. These refugee children, who had already experienced varying degrees of trauma, were then forced to live in adverse conditions, often separated from family members and with a very uncertain future. Mm-hmm. So what are the presenting signs and symptoms? Well, the condition appeared to manifest itself with social withdrawal and a failure to speak, eat or drink. Lawyers, through the court process, managed to get some of these children to Australia for treatment. Uh, One child had been bedridden and had reportedly suffered severe muscle wasting to his lower limbs, which may affect him permanently. So can you tell us a little bit more about the condition? Yeah, well, resignation syndrome is an extreme state. It apparently involves deep depression and a refusal to engage with other people. At its very most extreme, a sufferer may become comatose or catatonic. Uh, It's almost like a state of hibernation. Um, They are unresponsive even to painful stimuli. And total care is needed, for example, IV fluids and a sufferer risks kidney failure due to dehydration. So are there any other names for this state? Well, as I looked into it, it seems that other terms for the condition which our listeners may have heard of before include depressive devitalisation, although I have to admit I'd never heard of that, and pervasive arousal withdrawal syndrome. So some psychiatrists out there will, I'm sure, be familiar with those terms. But essentially, the condition is a result of hopelessness and feeling utterly helpless 
in the face of insurmountable stress. So um, what can cause this syndrome? Well, in the case of the children on Nauru who developed this condition, apart from the traumas um, many had already suffered, causing their parents to flee their country of origin and the fears they encountered while fleeing by boat, they were put in adverse conditions and they were exposed to parents and other people who were profoundly mentally unwell due to reactive depression, anxiety and things like that. Um, and they were also separated from key family figures, um, which adds to the distress. So it might be their grandparents in their home country or it might actually be a, a parent or sibling on while they're on the re, they're separated, yeah. So what's happening with the children who develop this condition and the others at risk who are on Nauru? Well, thankfully, uh, a t teams of Australian lawyers have fought tooth and nail to have these children brought to Australia. And we, Nauru doesn't actually have the high level care that these kids need. Um, and hospital treatment, inpatient treatment is essential. Um, and care ranges from nutritional support and mental health treatment and, you know, overseeing by a consultant um, paediatrician. And recovery can be a very slow process. So has this condition been seen anywhere else? Well, when I looked into it, it was interesting to see that there's been research on this condition done in Sweden. And again, it was found to affect children of asylum seekers particularly those who've witnessed extreme violence, and they, they appear to be the most vulnerable. And uh, interestingly enough, the condition was also seen in inmates of Nazi concentration camps. I found that out. Mm. Oh, wow. So just before we move on, um, do you have anything else to add? Well, as this goes to wear, and due to the unrelenting work of refugee advocates, including human rights lawyers, there's now only around 10 children on Nauru. There were hundreds. Um, hundreds in particular were, were removed last year following reports from Medicine Sans Frontiers, the United Nations, Save the Children Fund, and the Australian Medical Association. They're just a few of the organisations that were um, being very vocal on the issue of trying to get um, these people the care they need and I just hope that these poor kids are able to recover and find a life that's free from the fear and uncertainty of the last few years. Yeah mm. and definitely we can only hope that 2019 is better for them. Mm. So moving on to Terry, so you'll be talking about the National Redress Scheme. Do you want to tell us a little bit about why it is and why you chose it as your topic? Um, thanks Rebecca. Rebecca. <laughs> We've got a Rachel and Rebecca today, so I'm getting a little bit muddled here. Uh, yes, look, I was aware that there were people concerned about the National Redress Scheme that has been developed as a result of the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses uh, to Child Sexual Abuse. Uh, so I thought that could be, you know, in five minutes, it was certainly in the, in the news a lot last year, could be a topic of real interest to quite a, quite a big cohort of our audience. Um, and so what happened was that the Royal Commission uncovered horrific abuse uh, and very, very extraordinarily poor, um, really criminal uh, putting or, or hiding of that abuse. And they recommended that victims uh, be compensated up to 200,000. Uh, 
Now I'm not quite sure how we got from the Royal Commission to the National Redress Scheme, but somehow that cap was reduced to 150,000. And there are a lot of uh, victims of institutional sexual abuse and uh, lawyers and academics who are supporting them and are knowledge about this topic who are deeply concerned about the National Redress Scheme. Now, I guess uh, it's better than having absolutely nothing, which is where we were some time ago. Uh, it is designed to help people to gain access to counselling and psychological services, uh, to get a direct response from the institution that had a hand in their abuse, and to get some monetary payment. But um, Dr Judy Corton, who did her PhD in whether victim survivors of child sexual abuse are getting any sort of justice through the system, I think she interviewed about 70 people who were survivors or carers of survivors over a period of years. And her PhD was completed in 2015. She found that none of them were getting any justice. Hmm. That's extraordinary. Anyway, uh, so she's obviously a very noticeable, um, a very informed person. She's done her research. So it's a bit of a worry. Um, Dr. Judy Corton is based at um, Monash University. And her comment is that the National Redress Scheme is one that's now, not, not the one that was designed by the Royal Commission recommendations, but the one that's been developed by the Liberal federal government mm. is one that re-traumatises many victims. She describes it as a shamefully adulterated version of what was recommended by the Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse. So, you know, I'm very worried about that. And that's one reason why I wanted to do a little bit of research on it and, and maybe have a discussion about it on Brainwaves. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for bringing it. So, um, funding changes, do you think that would have impacted the final report? Well, um, what, what's really interesting is that child sexual, sexual abuse can have multiple complex and profound impacts. Those impacts differ by individual and can change over time. So obviously we're dealing with something that's very complicated in terms of coming up with a, a, an appropriate formula to help people through the financial side of it. And the Royal Commission had experts and they did all their homework and came up with a very reasonable matrix and that has been changed completely. So um, as the Royal Commission and Dr Judy Corton argues, the severity of the sexual abuse and the severity of the impacts of that sexual abuse must be considered and assessed separately. Two different things. Different people can be impacted in different ways. Now the National Redress Schemes is disregarding that distinction. Um, so it's of real concern. Now, um, the National Redress Scheme opened up in July last year, 2018. As at uh, last week, 28 survivor victims, and there are 60,000 that are entitled to some sort of um, support, 28 so far have been paid out. So it's slow moving. So there's lots of bureaucratic complications. 
but the assessment of how much money people get is also extraordinary, really. Um, it doesn't seem to be based on good psychology. What the psychologists and what the researchers all know, it's not based on, on knowledge. It seems to be about saving money every which way they can. And that, that is a worry, you know, we've had victims' lives ruined by sexual abuse mm -hmm. and we want to do something a lot better than that. And for goodness sakes, a lot of these are church institutions, the very institutions that are supposed to be helping the downtrodden. Yeah, thank you so much. I, it's definitely a really important issue and I'm glad we you've had this discussion with us and hopefully in 2019 things will be better for everyone. Thank you. And can I just mention, if people have inquiries about the National Redress Scheme, they can call 1800 737 377 between 8 and 5, Monday to Friday. 1800 737 377. Thank you. Yep. So uh, for the topic that I chose to talk about is the increase of funding for eating disorders, um, which... I believe it all came out by the Morrison government on the 8th of December, so it's been a, been about a month or so now. Um, and basically, so currently people um, can access Medicare rebates for up to 10 sessions of psychological therapy and five sessions with um, a dietitian under a separate chronic disease management plan. So the increased funding means that there'll be 40 subsidised psychological services and 20 dietetic services. So first half, you'll have 40, uh, so you'll have 20 psychological sessions and 10 dietetic sessions with professional of your choice. Um, and then if you still need some treatment, which in often cases happens, you go back to your GP and you get another plan set up. And I think this is an amazing thing because like everyone knows with GP, mental health care plans, like to get treatment, you get five sessions to start off with. And in those five sessions, you've got to find the right psychologist, um, the person that works with you most. And often at times you can't get another plan to see another, like whether it's a dietitian or some someone else um and this is all happening when you're very unwell yeah yeah and i mean like based off my own personal experience with psychologists it can take up to like three sessions to even get into why you're like why you're even there in the first place because the first two sessions are going into your history what's going on in your life and what the problem is and then if you find out halfway through that that therapist you're with is not meshing with you, then you've got to find another therapist. But, oh, look, you've used half your sessions. Mm -hmm. So then you go back to another GP when you find the right professional and you get it extended. And then you have the extra seven sessions. And, I mean, seven sessions to make up in a year. Pretty hard if you do it, like, once every single month. And then there's still like a loss because when the year's not even over and you've used all your therapy sessions, then you have to start paying privately. And for students such like myself and people who don't work and people who have serious like illnesses, mm. they can't access, they can't afford these programs. So I think it's definitely an amazing thing that the government has done. 
Um, it's 110.7 million investment. I think they said that will be going over four years. The only issue that I've noticed that people on social media have been talking about is there's around 1 million Australians who currently suffer from an eating disorder and the Butterfly Foundation, everyone is saying that these treatments will be there for about 30,000 Australians. I mean, 30,000 to like 1 million Australians who are suffering from an eating disorder. And a lot of people were definitely concerned, um, especially through social media, that they were voicing their opinions. And while it's amazing to have the extra funding, it's not going to be amazing if half of Australians can't access it. Um, So anyway, the Butterfly Foundation ended up um, releasing a fact sheet and they've said they're trying their hardest as they can to make sure every single Australian will be able to get this treatment um, and that it's for all eating disorders, like whether it's anorexia, binge eating disorder, bulimia nervosa, um, orthorexia, any severe and complex eating disorders, like they don't want the actual treatment and investment into funding these treatments to be basically not available for anyone who is not considered to have like a serious eating disorder. Um, And another thing which is amazing is they're saying that the diagnosis will not be based on BMI measurement. Um, And to to access the support, all you need is two healthcare professionals. So a medical practitioner, like a GP or a pediatrician, plus a mental health professional experience in eating disorders. And if you've got those, you can access this treatment. And what's amazing is it's estimated that the treatment and the funding should all go through November this year, so 2019. So by the end of the year, we're looking at more people who will have access to treatment and actually get the help that they need and not have to like waste so many sessions on therapy that won't it won't really help in the long run because it's been seen for people who have lifelong conditions such as like for instance bipolar or borderline personality disorder you can see that you need years of therapy and you need more than like 10 sessions a year and plus if you've got two illnesses at the same time like it, it's just harder to get help. So it's amazing that they're increasing it to 40 psychological sessions with a psychologist and a, and, ten, and 20 sessions overall for a dietitian or dietetic services. So I think it's just amazing and such an improvement. And that's one of the things I'm glad about that's happened last year. Um, so also moving on to Rachel. So we'll be, talk, so we'll be talking about the final topic um, about celebrities and mental health and that's been a huge thing that came out last year that every celebrity was really trying and just letting everyone else into their lives and what they're struggling with. Yeah um, so obviously as you mentioned I chose to talk about this topic because it was you know a big thing in 2018 like more than ever so many celebrities were coming out with you know Um, social media posts or in interviews talking about their own experiences with mental health battles Um, for example the very well-known Kendall Jenner um, you know she opened up about having panic attacks anxiety attacks um, on 
you know, on the family's TV show and when she, while she was having a very personal conversation with her mum. And, I mean, this makes sense. Like, she's a model, you know, she's watched by the world and her appearance is always being scrutinised as well as her every move. So it only makes sense for people like her and other people that are in the public eye to be having, you know, anxiety all the time about people judging them or what people are thinking of them. Um, Furthermore, also also, um, Adele, Chrissy Teigen, they opened up about having postpartum depression after having their children. Um, and also singer Zayn Malik, he had to cancel several of his shows and while he was on tour because he just couldn't perform, he had such bad anxiety. And he actually mentioned, he said, you know, no matter how much I want to perform and, you know, I have this drive to want to do what I want and please my fans, I physically can't because it's so debilitating. Um, there's so many other celebrities that, you know, explain their similar battles with depression And I found that the most common thread between a lot of these people talking about their mental illnesses was that they always made the comment that they were ashamed to, um, you know, share their feelings or experiences because they felt like they didn't deserve to be feeling bad or they felt ashamed for it because they are in such a privileged position. Um, You know, being celebrities and they... um, They just, yeah, they keep specifying that they didn't think they should be open about their feelings because people would see them as selfish or ungrateful, you know, and why should people that are famous, people with lots of money, be having these sort of issues? But I think it's really important that they do, um, they, you know, they do um, open up about things like this because we see celebrities as, you know, unrelatable or as their status being, you know, unachievable for everyday people like us. Um, But the fact that these people are sharing experiences that, you know, other people have, it makes us realise that, you know, we are just like them. They are humans. They have emotions just like us. Um, Yeah, and so, I don't know, I think, like, open discussions about mental health issues, you know, connects different people's worlds together and it just shows that everyone is going through or most people are going through struggles and you just need to be aware of it and yeah I think it's really important that lots of celebrities did talk about and be honest about things that they might not have wanted to share prior to last year and there's definitely been some backlash towards this movement like I just know off the top of my head for instance Demi Lovato who uh, ended up relapsing and nearly died from a drug overdose and like as soon as you go on social media like just people like bad mouth everyone and make fun of like addictions and people coming out about these about like addiction problems or depression um and basically saying that these celebrities are diminishing the struggles that people with mental health issues go through what do you think about that i mean i can see why people would think, you know, are these celebrities, like, they just want more attention or they want to, you know, mental health issues are now, like, you know, a trend and they just want to fit in and things like that. But I think it's just becoming more acceptable to talk about stuff like that. I don't necessarily think that these people are, you know, claiming to have issues that they don't. I mean, like, for example, Demi Lovato, like, she's, you know, bipolar. She's been very open about, you know, her struggles and in, you know, her past and her teenage years and things like that with addiction, with mental health. 
And I mean, she does receive lots of backlash for that, as do other people. But I also think it helps open up conversation, discussions about, you know, other people going through the same things. Like, I think it's more beneficial than, you know, than (laughs) negative. But I do understand how it is controversial. Yeah. In what other ways do you think celebrities can help reduce stigma and help support those who suffer from mental health issues? I honestly just think um, people just being as honest and accepting of everybody as possible, like making it known that it is okay to talk if you're struggling, that it's not, you know, something you have to keep quiet or hide. And I think like the world in general is getting better at that. Like now there's a lot more acceptance of people that are going through things and, you know, lots of different movements that have happened recently. I feel like we're just becoming better as a society. Um, So I feel like it can just continue the way that it is or people, you know, become just more open to sharing, to wanting help and, and, you know, there's services being available for people if they are open to obtaining it. Yeah, and it's definitely been such a big issue and just even people talking about mental health issues makes a difference like makes a difference like I like to believe even this show like makes a difference and we can see that so I think it's important that as I feel like a lot of the times people assume celebrities like they're untouchable they're rich they've got these money like this money they've got cars they've got all everything they could possibly want but at the same time it doesn't mean they're happy like how many of us are happy with our lives? Like, why do we expect celebrities to be happy even though they may consider to be have, to have everything? Uh, so just the last panel discussion, any thoughts anyone wants to throw around? Yes, Susie? Yeah, I was just going to say that I have a couple of friends who appear to be high achievers, and they are high achievers, but they openly share on social media their battles with conditions such as bipolar and depression and anxiety and I find that very courageous and I think celebrities um, doing it perhaps inspires other people and by sharing it sort of creates an acceptance um, not only with other people but with yourself you know. Yeah I definitely think that's true. And I I love the fact that the word is getting out there. I mean, things we didn't know as much in the past. We know a lot more. Mm -hmm. And the more the information gets out into the community, the more chance we all have of achieving Mm -hmm. greater well-being. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm excited by that, even though we've obviously got a long way to go. Yeah. So definitely it's been one heck of a year last year, so we can only hope that next year is better. So thank you so much for listening to the show tonight and thank you to everyone who has participated online and given us feedback and thank you to everyone here in the studio who participated tonight. Uh, So you can find more of our shows on the 3CR website, brainwaves.org.au or on... Sorry, you can find more of our shows on the Brainwaves website, brainwaves.org.au or the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. Um, if any of the things we talked about today has distressed you, you can contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Wellways Helpline on 13 triple 11, You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.